If you have a Bible, would you uh, please turn in it to John chapter 4. We are continuing a series looking at the signs in the Gospel of John, the seven miraculous signs that he records. Last week, we looked at the first one, the turning of water into wine in a place called Cana in Galilee. The second sign is recorded in John chapter 4, verses 46 to 54, and takes place in the same location. Let's read John chapter 4 from verse 46 down to verse 54 together. Then he, that is Jesus, came to Cana in Galilee, where he had changed the water into wine. Now there was a royal official whose son lay ill in Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my little boy dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. And he was going down, as he was going down, his slaves met him and told him that his child was alive. So he asked them the hour when he began to recover and they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. The father realized that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now this was the second sign that Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. This second sign, the second symbol in the Gospel of John that points to who Jesus is and what he does is profoundly moving. A young boy has fallen sick and his father, a nobleman, somebody in high-ranking Jewish society, serving in the company and household of Herod, hears that Jesus is coming to Cana in Galilee and goes and asks him to touch him. Jesus has a brief conversation with him, which I will elucidate in a moment because the New Revised Standard Version, the Bible version in English that I read, um, translates it rather poorly. And I want to, it's important that I explain what I mean by that in a moment. And then he tells this, young fa this father of the young boy to go back home because his son is well. And the father believes him and returns home. And as he's on his way back, his servants or his slaves come to him and say, your son is better. And when they talk about what time that happened, it was at exactly the moment that Jesus had said that the young boy would live. And we're told that as a result, the nobleman and his household all believed in God. I want to correct one of the ways in which um, you may hear it. I'm not sure, because I haven't uh, checked the New International Version, which most of you will read, how it translates this story. But there's something important that I want to kind of help you understand before we get into the guts of it for a few moments. In verse 47, the nobleman, let's read it again. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. The New Revised Standard Version and many English versions of the Bible translate verse 48 um, this way. 
Then Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. In Greek, it is written as a plural. Now you might say, well, that doesn't make any difference. Actually, it makes a great deal of difference. Jesus is not rebuking this man for asking him to heal his son. He is talking to the people that are watching the conversation. He's talking to those that are looking for a sign or for a wonder. He's not criticizing a parent who comes to him to ask him to heal his boy. Jesus never criticizes us when we come with genuine hearts. Even when he says no to our request, he doesn't criticize us, he doesn't chastise us, he doesn't rebuke us. And occasionally, we just need to make sure that the way things sound in our Bibles, and sometimes we just need a little bit of help to understand exactly what is going on. So the story more accurately is the story of a nobleman who finds out that Jesus is returning to Cana in Galilee and is desperate for his little boy to be made well. And he goes honestly and openly to ask Jesus to make him well. And Jesus challenges the people around him, the spectators, the people that are saying, you have to prove yourself. You have to give us a sign, give us a miracle. If you don't do that, then we're not going to believe in you. He challenges them. He doesn't criticize the father. And then he heals the father's young child. How do you listen to that story this morning? If you're someone who has experienced the healing power of God, then you listen to it with thankfulness and with joy in your heart. If you're someone who has asked God to bring healing into somebody's life and God has said no, it's harder to read. Because the reality is that when we read the New Testament and when we explore church history, God doesn't heal everybody, not in this life. There are women and men sitting here who prayed this prayer for their children, for their family, for their loved ones, and God answered it with a no. How do we handle that? This wonderful, powerful, beautiful, life-giving sign, how do we handle it? I guess some of us might handle this by not asking Jesus to do something anymore. I think that's the wrong way of handling the signs in John's gospel. It's okay to ask Jesus to bring healing to those that are sick. It's okay to lift them up to him. It's okay to say to him, please, will you hear my cry and touch this man or touch this boy or touch this girl or touch this mom or this dad or this son or this brother or this sister? Don't be afraid of asking because you're afraid of the answer. There have been many times in my life when I have said to God, would you please do this? And he has said no. But I will keep asking. I will keep coming before him. I will keep lifting people up to him. Those in our church family that are sick, what am I praying for? Healing. How long will I pray for it? Until it is the wrong thing to pray. Until it is obvious that those people have been taken to be with Christ or um, they are free from the challenges that they are facing. But I'll not stop asking. You might say to me, Does that not, is that not difficult? It's actually more difficult to keep praying than it is to stop praying and pray for something else. It's harder to keep coming back to God and saying, I believe that you're able, even in the face of what all of this looks like, I'm asking you again. This sign is a sign that challenges us about our faith and about what we are looking for. 
It's a beautiful and a simple story. In it, we see Jesus challenging those around this man that they want to sign. I wonder how the charismatic and Pentecostal church rates when it comes to this. We have to have a sign. We have to have a miracle. You have to do it. You have to prove yourself. You have to, you have to, you have to. I want to separate myself from that theology. I find it difficult. As a pastor, I find it difficult. As a leader of human beings, I find it difficult to be in a context where people say, if God doesn't do something, then he's not proving who he is. God sometimes does things in very surprising ways. It doesn't change who he is. What about you, sisters, brothers, ladies and gentlemen? When you're asking God to do something, why are you asking him? Are you asking him because if he says no, then he's not God? Or are you asking him because you are genuinely convinced that he is able to do anything? You see, as a, a pastor, one of the hardest things that I have to walk with over the years of ministry in which I have been engaged is the disappointment of those to whom God has said no. Helping them to understand that it doesn't mean that he doesn't love them. It doesn't mean that he's not present and it doesn't mean that he's not there. In this story, there is more going on than simply the story of a young boy being healed, although that is the most important thing. So what I'm asking you to do with me, and I appreciate that it's not easy, is to hold several things in your head and in your heart at the same time as a Christian, if you are a Christian. The first thing is to believe and to hold in your heart that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above anything that we can ask or think according to the power that is at work in him. Never allow yourself to be diminished in that conviction. Come back to the stories of scripture again and again and again and read them again and again and again and allow them to seep into your soul and into your heart. God is able. There are testimonies sitting in this room. There's one standing in front of you of a God, of, of, of God's healing power. God is not restricted. God is not weakened. God has not changed. God's identity and character and nature are not diminished in any way. Amen. He is still able. So that's the first thing that I'm asking you to hold on to. And the second thing, which is hard, I know, and for some of you is really difficult. For some, perhaps, would even mean that you might say, do you know, I don't think I could worship regularly in Dundonald Elam Church. God doesn't always heal. He doesn't always say yes. He doesn't always grant you your requests. He doesn't come to give you an easy life. He doesn't make everybody well this side of eternity. He doesn't take away all sicknesses and diseases. He doesn't take away all pain and sorrow and heartbreak. That's not the kind of God that he is. Some of us have had to walk through it. Some of us are still walking through it. And I appreciate that seeing the idea that God is able and seeing the idea that he doesn't always do can feel like I'm asking you to believe two contradictory things. I'm not. Because I'm asking you a third thing, and that is to remember 
what is going on in the Gospels and what's going on in this story and why it really matters that we hold on to this tension. In John's Gospel, as I've said to you before, there are seven fundamental signs that are exhibited, seven signs that are shown to demonstrate who Jesus is and who he claims to be. This is the second one of them. Each of those signs points to something about who he is and what he does. As an aside, just for a moment, if you are interested in exploring John's gospel more profoundly or personally, he picks up this idea of seven again and again and again. Seven is the number of perfection within Hebrew theology. For example, in John chapter 1 verse 19 through to John chapter 2 verse 25, Jesus records, uh, John records Jesus' ministry across seven days. John 1.19, John 1.29, John 1.35, John 1.43, John 2.1 and John 2.11. And on the seventh day, he performs his first sign, which is the turning of water into wine at Cana. There's an underlying Jewish message here to these readers that Jesus is all that he promises to be. He is the perfect representation of God to them. At the end of John's gospel, if you're interested, between John chapter 18, verse 28, and John chapter 19, verse 16, John presents Jesus as having seven brief encounters with Pilate, one after the other, showing that he is answering all of the questions and all of the accusations fully and completely. John 18, 28 to 32. John 18, 33 to 38. John 18, 38 to 40. John 19, 1 to 3. 19, 4 to 8. 19, 9 to 12. And 19, 12 to 16. I know that's fast. You can pick them up off the uh, web if you want them later. Then you have these seven signs that we've talked about. Then you have the seven sayings of Jesus. I am the bread of life. Repeated in John chapter 6 twice. I am the light of the world. Repeated in John 8, 12 and 9, 5. I am the gate. Repeated twice in John 10. I am the good shepherd. Repeated twice in John 10. I am the resurrection and the life in John 11. I am the way, the truth and the life in John 14. And I am the vine. Repeated twice in John 15. And in the run up to this sign... You have a story of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. That's where John's gospel begins. Pointing toward Jesus. He's such an exciting figure that three times in John chapter 1, those that are watchers of Jesus and of this early ministry ask, who are you of John the Baptist? In John 1.19, in John 1.22, and in John 1.24, three times, who are you? Who are you? He answers them by saying two different things. First of all, in John chapter 1, verses 20 to 21, he says, I am not the Messiah. And then in John chapter 1, verses 25 to 27, he says, I am not worthy. And then he says, you will know the story. He points to Jesus, right? He sees Jesus coming to be baptized. And in Greek, we're told that he points to him. Like a sign. <laughs> And he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And from that moment on, these signs take on a significance. Everyone points to him. Now, why does this sign find its space here? Why is this so important? Well, there are various things that I could say about it that I will in a moment, but there's a little bit of background to it. And I hope this is helpful to you. 
At the heart of the Gospel of John is the conviction that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Saviour of the world. The signs that are scattered across it point to him in various different ways to show that he is the one that heals the sick, that he is the one that turns um, existence into life, that he's the one that opens blind eyes so that we can see physically and spiritually. He's the one that is the only way into God. He's the one that guards his people. He's the one in whom we find our life. He's the one that brings life out of death and hope out of despair and a way out of lostness and truth out of lies and deceit. There's a big picture going on here. And in these first couple of signs, there's another thing going on that you may miss if you read it too quickly. Did you notice that in John chapter 4, verse 445, we are told Jesus returns to Cana where he performed his first sign. John is very intentional about telling us he's gone back to the same place. In John chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4, John is doing something which is really intriguing. He's setting the scene of a Jesus who takes away the sins of the world. He's picking up what John the Baptist said at the end of John chapter 1 and helping people realise how profound and how life-giving and how inclusive this message of life is. And here's how he does it. First of all, There's a comparison between two conversations, one in John chapter three and one in John chapter four, immediately prior to this story. In John chapter three, a wealthy, well-connected, well-educated Jewish leader comes to Jesus and has a conversation with him about signs, about miracles, about power. And he says, no one could do these things. His name is Nicodemus, unless they were sent from God. And Jesus has a conversation with this named, wealthy, influential, connected Jewish man. In John chapter four, Jesus, in John three, Nicodemus goes looking for Jesus. In John four, Jesus goes looking for an unnamed woman. John three, named man comes to Jesus John 4, unnamed Samaritan woman, Jesus goes to. John 3, influential. John 4, not influential. John 3, male. John 4, female. John 3, connected. John 4, not connected. John 3, known. John 4, not known. John 3, powerful. John 4, weak. John 3, at the centre of religious society in Israel. John 4, not even in religious society in Israel. Hated by religious society in Israel. So the first thing about this passage is that it comes at the end of those two conversations which are about John saying this message of Jesus is for everyone. It includes men and women. It includes connected and unconnected. It includes remembered and forgotten. It includes influential and weak. It includes the knowledgeable and the unknowledgeable. It includes the educated and the uneducated. It includes those that think that they are at the center of religious life and those that know that they're not even entitled to stand in the presence of God. That's quite good news. Well, it is if you feel that you're not good enough. The second thing is, The wedding of Cana and the miracle of the nobleman's son both take place in Cana. And there's a similar thing going on there. A nobleman, the higher echelons of Jewish society, wealthy, powerful, influential, and the only person that can help him is Jesus. And the first sign, unknown couple 
who don't even have enough money to buy enough wine for the wedding. And the only person that can help them is Jesus. So in this sign, as it comes to us, there is an invitation to every one of you and every one of us. Whatever your background, whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through, whatever your story, Jesus Christ is here. He is powerful, he is strong, and he is able. But if you have come demanding a sign, if you're one of those Christians that says God has to prove himself again and again and again, then I think Jesus' ministry will probably disappoint you. Because here's a controversial thing, but it's the only way that I can make sense of this text and the, the New Testament And I want you to hear carefully what I'm going to say to you. If Jesus Christ was never to perform another miracle, ever, it doesn't change who he is. The evidence is already here. John's gospel presents the case, presents the evidence and closes the argument. God is under no obligation ever to perform another miracle. And if he wasn't to do so, it wouldn't change who he was. It wouldn't change his character. It wouldn't change his truth. It wouldn't change his reality. And it wouldn't change his power. That's hard for you to hear, I think, this morning. Because we often come to him saying, he has to do it. If he's God, he'll do it. He's already proven himself. He's already demonstrated his greatness. He's already demonstrated his power. He's already defeated sin and death and hell. And if you think God has to heal in order to prove his greatness, then your theology is tilting into something that will end up damaging you or someone that you love. He doesn't have to do anything. He's already proved who he is. But he still does graciously heal. He graciously touches people. He graciously sets people free. He graciously transforms lives. He graciously restores broken bodies. And that's why we ask. Not because we're afraid that he's not God, but because we believe that he is. But here's the hardest thing for me to say to you. This healing of this young boy is not a guarantee that everybody will be healed in this life. But there is such a guarantee about healing in more general terms found in John chapter 11, the last sign involving physical healing. When Jesus heals the the man Lazarus, whose sisters Mary and Martha are heartbroken. And he says this to that couple as they struggle. And these two miracles need to be taken together. Your brother will live again. Do you believe this? And they respond with a religious answer. I'll unpack it in a few weeks. Yes, I do believe this. We will all live again in the resurrection. And Jesus said, no, I am the resurrection and the life. Listen, he who believes in me will never die. And he who believes in me, even if he dies, yet shall he live. There's the sign that is the sign above every other sign. Let me explain what I understand that to mean. 
as a Pentecostal theologian, as a pastor of a Pentecostal church, when Jesus walked on earth in Matthew chapter 8, we are told that he healed the sick, that he raised the dead, that he opened blind eyes, that he touched people. And Matthew makes it very clear why he includes some of his stories. He says he does this so that what was said of him might be shown to be true. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 53. By his stripes we are healed. Now there are some theologians that will say that only points to spiritual healing. It doesn't. It cannot only point to spiritual healing. Because in the context of the miracles in Matthew chapter 8, there is a a sea, a storm that is being calmed. There is a demoniac that's being delivered. There's a person that's being healed. Matthew is very intentional about where he places it. Matthew is saying something about the life and the death of Jesus Christ. And here's what he is saying. That somehow, as Jesus suffers and dies, there is life in his death. There is healing in his cross. Some Christians who believe in something called word of faith will tell you that means that everybody should be healed before death. It's not, I don't believe what the scriptures teach. And it's certainly not what I believe. Others will tell you that that must only refer to spiritual healing. That's not what the scriptures make clear either. Here's what I think they do make clear. And for some of you, it will feel like second best but it is actually the greatest promise of all. Every single Christian goes through death, but is not defined by it. The healing of Jesus Christ is assured for every believer. For many of us, that healing will be evidenced after death when we are given a glorified body and resurrected and remain with him forever. Your problem and mine is that we want Jesus to do all of that before we die. And who wouldn't? But he doesn't promise to do that. But here is the stronger promise. He ultimately brings all of us to full and complete healing through death. This young boy that was healed died eventually. Lazarus that was healed died eventually. Every person in the New Testament died eventually and did not come back to life permanently except Jesus. But the resurrection of Jesus, his healing ministry on earth while he was alive was not only evidence of his Messiahship then, it's evidence of his reign and his rule now, and it is evidence to every believer everywhere that we will ultimately be glorified and death does not get the last word with us. Our problem is that's not enough. If we're really honest, we don't think it's enough. I wish I hadn't to preach on John chapter four today. I wish God had given a text to us that was a different text to this for those of you that are part of our church family for obvious reasons. But this is the text that is before us. 
And this text, even to those families going through the deepest heartbreak and pain, brings hope and courage and confidence if you will let it. And it is that what happened to you this week is not the end of the story. There is a promise for all of us that we hold on to. And if we're honest, we often don't think it's enough. Because we want it immediately, we want it now. But I would be lying to you as your pastor if I told you that that's what God does. And I could take you to dozens of churches. Listen, if you want Donald Elam to be filled with people looking for a miracle, find another pastor. Because with a tweak here and a tweak there and a little phrase here and a little phrase there, this can be the church where everybody comes for a miracle and leaves within six months disappointed and heartbroken because God doesn't dance on the string that we control with our hand. The reality is, and I say this knowing that this is being broadcast online, the Pentecostal and Charismatic Church in Europe, in Northern Ireland, in the Republic of Ireland, needs to get back to a theology which is more balanced around this. We are hurting people when we tell them again and again and again that God will do anything they want when they want it. We cannot be that congregation. Think about what God has done here in the last 14 or 15 months. What is the thing that he has used more than anything else to unite us, to hold us together, to bring comfort and strength? What is the one track, if you like, that has brought out love and compassion and mercy and grace in this church? What's the thing that has tied our hearts together? Sorrow. Heartbreak. Pain. Difficulty, unanswered prayer, loss. And some people would look and say, what a terrible thing to be defined by. I say we're not defined by it, we're refined by it. We are defined by God's grace and mercy and compassion and goodness and grace and kindness and closeness and nearness. And we have watched him pick people up week after week and month after month and carry them and sustain them. Some of you are sitting here including those that went through their losses last week. So when I read this story, I find myself in a place where I say, God, I believe this. And I know our world needs to see you moving in miraculous power. But I also believe that this evidence is to me and to anyone who will believe it, that you are the Son of God that you have defeated death and sin and sadness, that they never get the last word in the life of a believer. And I find myself often in a Christian community for whom that is simply not enough. And then I think I feel lonely in that community. I want to be part of a community that with tears tracing down our faces can stand up and say, and we still believe him. This man is blessed indeed, isn't he? This nobleman's son is sick. He comes to Jesus in simple faith. Jesus says, your son will be well. He goes back and he's well. How can that relate to Malcolm Duncan who has said to Jesus again and again, make them well. And he has said no. Take away their sickness and he has said no. Take them out of that darkness and he has said no. Do you know how many times I've prayed that for the people in our church? 
How can I then say I believe this? Because the no that I hear is not the same kind of no that other people hear. The no that I hear when I go to Jesus now, because of John's gospel, because of this story, and because of the story of the healing of Lazarus, is actually a no, not yet. But one day, you'll see that I have done everything right. One day, you'll see that every prayer has been answered. One day, you'll see that every sickness has been dealt with. Every tear has been wiped away. Every heartbreak has been taken away. Every disease has been healed. I believe that with every fiber of my being. And therefore, as a pastor, I can sit with people who face the ultimate loss and say, this is not the end. Remember the stories of John's gospel. I can sit with those that have to say goodbye. I can sit with those walking with illness. I can face it myself with a deep, profound conviction. That's not the end of this story. And this sign alongside the other six signs in the gospel of John do not point to the immediacy of Jesus only. They point to the transcendence and the power of Jesus. Always and at every point in history and time. So, I say to you this morning, God is here. At the beginning of this service, I prayed with those of you in need. What was I praying for? I was praying for God to touch you. I was praying for God to heal you. I was praying for God to release you, to do something naughty. Of course I was. But I was praying in a posture of humility. And that posture says, and if you say no, it's because you are going to do something different. It's because this story is not finished. This journey hasn't ended and this isn't the last word. That means that I'm not one of those people that will fill a church with promises of miracles. I'm not one of those pastors that will tell you to pretend that the heartbreak you're walking through isn't real and that you should deny it. Instead, I come to you in the name of Jesus and say, the Jesus that healed this official son is able to heal your sons and daughters in this life or in the next. And I don't get to decide which he does. But it will never stop me asking. And I think in some ways, that means that you and I as Christians, if we are Christians, must make decisions about the maturity of our faith. It is only when God says no to your deepest prayer that you are able to have a revelation in your own heart of whether you trust him no matter what. But when he says no to your profoundest prayer and you stay, and yet, Lord, I will praise you, something happens in your soul and you are given the grace to face everything and anything 
because you know you still believe in him. That has happened in my life. It's happened in some other people's lives. It may happen in yours. But to stare God in the face and hear him say, I'm not going to do what you want. And to be able to say back to him, but I still believe in you. Is a profoundly liberating space that I invite you to ask God to give you the grace to step into this morning. And why do I know all of that? I know all of that because of what we're going to do now. Because Jesus suffered the divine no. so that you could one day hear the divine yes. Every sin laid upon him. Every sickness. Every heartbreak, every pain, every sorrow, every loss. Laid upon him. Yet in the words of the old hymn writer, he bore it up triumphant. And because he is triumphant, we are triumphant. Because he broke the bonds of death, we will break the bonds of death. Because he defeated sin, sin is defeated in our lives. Because he has won the victory, we can live in it. That's a sober thing. And it's not the touchy-feely thing that many people want in their Christian faith, but it is the rock on which we stand. It is unbreakable, unshakable, and unmovable. And when you pass through the darkest valley, that is what will hold you. Christ has died and rose again. And Revelation 21 and 22 is true. There will be a day when there, is no more, there are no more tears, there is no more sorrow, and there is no more pain, and there is no more suffering. But for those of you that have had to endure that in life, I want to promise you something. As much as I am able, I promise you, with all of my strength, I will not ever preach to you a trite sermon about suffering. I will not ever blame you. I will not ever give you some cliched sets of phrases from an evangelist's book that make you feel better in a moment but destroy your soul for a lifetime. I invite you to stand with me in the company of the bedraggled, the broken, and the people whose lives have been devastated by loss but who stand in the hope of Jesus Christ who stand in the promise of resurrection and who hold on to this. The cross is God's divine no to sin and the empty tomb is his divine yes to life. And no matter what we face, no matter what we go through, this sign is planted in eternity. He makes all things right. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together.
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and he gave thanks and said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he drank from it and said, this cup, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink from it, all of you. The Apostle Paul, describing this table, uses a phrase that I want to highlight to you as you reflect this morning. When we eat this bread and drink this wine, we show the Lord's death, and here's the phrase, until he comes. Every single time you as a Christian eat bread and drink wine, you are acknowledging before God that you live in an in-between moment. You are saying to him, I live between the brokenness of the cross and the final and full establishment of your kingdom. I identify with your death and with your resurrection. And I ask you to help me to live for you in a broken world. Without your grace, I can't do it. Without your strength, I can't do it. But every week I will remember Jesus died and rose again. It is in the cross you will find your life. It's in the resurrection that you will find your hope. And God invites us for every moment to rely on him for strength. Sisters and brothers, come to this table not because you must, but because you may. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Come not because you have all the answers, but because you know he is the answer. Come in your brokenness, in your sadness, in your sorrow. And by eating bread and drinking juice, may God give grace and strength to you to keep going. If you're not a Christian, then please either choose to surrender your life to Jesus Christ now or let the bread and the cup pass you by. If you are a believer and you're not walking with God, please, will you put that right now? And if you choose not to, let it pass you by. But I invite you to come and meet with the living God by the power of the Holy Spirit as we eat together. Could the stewards and the pastors please come forward?